Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, and who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, shall the protection of Pharaoh turn your turn to your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. For though his officials are at Zion and his envoys reach Hanes, everyone comes to shame through a people that cannot profit them, that brings neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace. An oracle on the, on the beasts of the Negev through a land of trouble and anguish, from where come the lioness and the lion, and the adder and the flying fiery serpent. They carry their riches on the backs of donkeys and their treasures on the humps of camels to a people that cannot profit them. Egypt's help is worthless and empty. Therefore I have called her Rahab who sits still. And now go, write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book that it may be for the time to come. And it was a witness forever. For they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to their seers, do not see. And to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things, prophecy illusions. Leave the way, turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and pervasiveness and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall, bulging out and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly, in an instant, and its breaking is like that of a potter's vessel that is smashed so ruthlessly that among its fragments not a shard is found with which it can take fire from the hearth or to dip up water out of the cistern. For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved, in quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling, and you said, no, we will flee upon horses, therefore you shall flee away, and we will ride upon swift steeds, therefore, your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you shall flee till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice, blessed, are those who wait for him. For a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself 
anymore, but your eyes shall see your teacher, and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. When you turn to the right or when you turn to the left, then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things, and you will say to them, Be gone! And he will give you rain for the seed with which you sow the ground, the bread, the produce of the ground, which will be rich and plenteous. For the day your livestock will graze in large pastures, and the oxen and the donkeys that work the ground will eat seasoned fodder, which has been winnowed with a shovel and fork. And on every lofty mountain and every high hill, there will be brooks running with water in the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. Moreover, the light of the moon will be as a light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be a sevenfold as the light of seven days in the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of his people and heals the wounds inflicted by his blow. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I think all of that's straightforward. I think I can just pray and we can move straight to the Lord's Supper. No, it is, uh, while Isaiah, I'm sure, feels opaque to us, uh, I'm very excited to be looking at this passage with you. There is much here that is, that is wonderful to consider. But before we do that, would you please join with me in prayer? Father, you, uh, you continue to speak to us. You renew us with your word. You, um, you make us uncomfortable sometimes with things that are confusing or difficult to understand, but it is always for our good. It is always because you love us. And Father, that is our prayer this morning, that you would help us more and more um, to move away from our avoidance of you and move towards you to trust more and more in your love that more and more we might be the people that you have created us to be. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, um, I want to talk about relationships, uh, specifically uh, the relationship that we have between us and God. Because really, this is at the very heart what Isaiah is about. It can be easy to miss this with all of the things that feel so foreign and confusing with all of the different nations battling each other and the sometimes obscure imagery and some of the prophetic language we can get lost. But at its very heart, the book of Isaiah is a book about a broken relationship between people and God and about the work that God will do to heal that relationship. It's kind of a strange thing if you think about it, the idea of us having a relationship with God. Think, you know, us human beings, people who can get lost in a shopping mall, people who get overwhelmed by doing our taxes, people who can get completely knocked out for a week by microscopic organisms. We who are so weak are somehow meant to have a relationship with the eternal, almighty, all-knowing God who is so far beyond us. It's almost incomprehensible, and yet Scripture's clear that that is what we are meant for, and that is what Isaiah speaks about. It describes the relationship 
between God's people and God. And more than just describe it, it actually is meant to instruct us. It is given to us to help us to know who we are and how we are to relate to God. And I think we see that actually fairly centrally to the passage that we just read. This, this passage ultimately is about this relationship, and specifically it tells us really two things. It focuses us on a problem that people have in their relationship with God, and it also then tells us the solution to that problem. And the problem is that people are rebellious towards God. That's the problem that we see here, that people are rebellious toward God. That's how our passage begins, where it says, Ah, stubborn children, literally it reads, Ah, sons of rebellion. And this isn't the first time we come across this theme. Way back in chapter 1, as, as God is introducing us to the problem that this book is about, He says, Sons have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Speaking of rebellion. Now, rebellion, um, just simply defined, is the act of rejecting authority. And sometimes, actually, rebellion can be good if the authority is unjust, if it's cruel. I mean, if you're a Star Wars fan, you might think when you think of the word rebellion of the rebel alliance, or, or maybe if you're following the news, you might think of the peaceful protests in Hong Kong. That's a kind of rebellion that seems maybe appropriate. But there are forms of rebellion when the authority is not unjust, when the authority is good, that can be incredibly harmful. I think of a friend of mine whose son tragically became addicted to drugs, and I remember stories that he told of as much as he sought to love and gently correct his son, it just brought a rupture to the whole family and deep heartbreak. It was a rebellion that was destructive. And that's how we should think of the rebellion that God addresses here when He speaks of people having rebellion. He's saying, I am the God who loves you. I am your Father, and yet you have chosen to act as if I'm not your Father. You've chosen to act as if I'm not your God, because that's, that's what rebellion is. It is specifically towards God to act as if God is not our God. It is to reject, to act against His authority. And what I'd like to suggest from the outset is that when we're speaking here of Judah, that's the nation that's being spoken of, Judah's issue of rebellion, this is not just about Judah. This is, this is a human problem. I want us to consider how we ourselves have a tendency toward rebellion against God because God is our God. He is our Father as well. He is our authority. And yet we do not treat Him that way. And so, what I want us to do is to actually spend some time looking in these opening verses about what this rebellion looks like to help us to see it also in ourselves. Because here's the thing, I think we might not know how to recognize it until we see it here, because I think probably for many of us, if we think of rebellion, we think of something violent. We think of doors slammed, fists raised, voices getting louder and louder, and yet that's that's oftentimes not within a family structure what rebellion looks like. If, if you know of situations where children and parents are at odds, oftentimes it's not with lots of conflict. Oftentimes it instead is avoidance. It is disconnection. It is choosing to act as if there is no relationship even when there is. 
And, and that's, that's the issue that we see with Israel. So, so we see kind of in three stages here what this rebellion looks like. Um, it begins in the opening verses with a choice to act independently from God. So we've mentioned in the last few weeks about how God's people are, are feeling very anxious. There is this threat, Assyria, this gigantic nation that has basically destroyed nation after nation that's right at the doorstep, and they are terrified. Now let me ask you, in a family, what happens when someone is threatened? Say, say there is a child who knows that he is about to be attacked by a bully. Or, or, or maybe you have a situation where a kid is just overwhelmed by the amount of work and they have no idea what to do. You would hope that in a healthy family system, they would go to their mom or to their dad and say, hey, I need some help. Can you help me figure this out? Or, or maybe to, to switch analogies, imagine if you are at work and there is something that suddenly happens that goes terribly wrong and it's a threat to the project that your whole team is about. The, the thing to do usually at that point is to bring it to your manager, to your boss, to say, hey, we need to figure this out. We've got a problem. That's, that's how a healthy family or a healthy team works. But we see with Judah, that's not what takes place. Judah sees this threat. They are terrified and they don't go to God. They go to Egypt. Last week we talked about this, about how Egypt in some ways was their God substitute of the one that they say, hey, we can find our refuge in them. We can trust in Egypt. Egypt's army will protect us, even though, as is mentioned here, it's going to cost them a lot in terms of tribute. There's going to be much sacrifice, and Egypt really isn't going to do much for them. Still, that's what they deal with. It. That's what they do. And notice how God speaks of this. He says, stubborn children declares the Lord who carry out a plan, but not mine, who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction. Do you, do you hear the emphasis? It's, it's like you are facing this terrifying threat, and yet you don't talk to me about it. You don't ask me about it. You, you choose to pretend as if I am not your father, or I am not your God. You act completely independently from me. See, this is, this is actually what rebellion looks like, not, not always with a raised fist, but sometimes just pretending as if the person who is your authority isn't important, acting as if his opinion, his leadership does not matter. And that's how this begins. And if we continue on, we see it moves from just being acting independently from God to actually willingly rejecting when God speaks, willingly refusing to hear. Notice if we continue on to verse 9, they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Here's what I think is being described. So, so God sends prophets. That's how God speaks to His people on that day. He sends people like Micah. He sends Isaiah. And as they speak, it's not so much that when people listen, they kind of just kind of get angry and start yelling back. Maybe sometimes, but other times, it's more just of a, an eye roll. It's like, oh, there you go again. Oh, Isaiah, you know, 
I've heard you say this before, but, you know, other people have different opinions. Who's to say? And why do we need to dwell so much on what's negative? Say some of the encouraging things that we also know that's true. God says, do you not understand when you are saying this, you're basically saying to the prophets, don't prophesy. Don't see anything. Just tell us things that we want to hear. Because choosing not to listen is not usually people sticking their fingers in their ears. It's much more about selective listening. It's about paying attention to the things that we want to believe and just kind of not noticing the things that are uncomfortable for us. Or, or sometimes choosing not to listen can just be through distraction. You know, the mathematician Pascal from many centuries ago believes that we oftentimes are as busy as we are and entertain ourselves as much as we are to try to keep ourselves from ever being able to be silent. We, we keep ourselves from having to confront the truth, hearing God. And, and, and God is saying, if, if that's the way you are, if you are selective listening, if you're asking for certain things, you are not seeking to listen to me. And of course, if we do not want to listen to God, we are not treating Him as our authority because authority means being able to speak uncomfortable things to us. This is a form of rebellion. And as we continue on, we see really the heart of it in verse 11, where it tells the prophets, leave the way, turn aside from the path, let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. And literally, that last phrase can be translated, get the Holy One of Israel out of our faces. Saying, we don't want to be confronted by God. We, frankly, would rather avoid Him altogether. And that's really what this has all been about. Why do they go to Egypt? Because they don't want to have to deal with God. Why, why do they just say, hey, don't only tell us certain things? Because they don't want to have to listen to God. What, what they have decided is that they don't want to have to deal with God at all. They are avoiding God. And, and that, that really is what rebellion is about. Again, it's, it's not about oftentimes passion. It's not about arguing. In fact, interestingly, God Himself welcomes the argument. Do you remember in chapter 1, come, let's argue this out, because arguing would mean turning towards God. That's why in the psalmist you oftentimes have people like speaking confused things to God. That's, that's not what, what rebellion looks like. It's not about heat or passion. It's about coldness and apathy and distance and disconnection and treating God as if He is some object that we put in protective casing and leaving on a shelf. We know that He is there, and sometimes we might think about Him, but most of the time He just gathers dust. See, that's, that's what rebellion is. It is the avoiding of God altogether, and in doing so, rejecting His authority. And what I, I want us to consider is how this is not just an issue for Judah, this is an issue for us. There are probably in this congregation some of you right now who are in rebellion against God, and you probably don't even realize it because you would never call it like that. Except if I ask you, in what way is God an authority over you? 
In what way is he significant in your life? In what way is he your leader? If you would think about it, you'd realize he is not. He is just someone I feel some distant connection from. Let me tell you, whether you realize it or not, that is rebellion. You have rejected his authority. Even for those of us who actively seek to place ourselves under the rule of Christ, if we are honest with ourselves, we will recognize those very same tendencies in ourselves. How often do we make significant decisions and not even think about what God's desire is in that? Or how often when we read God's Word do we just try to make sure we have an intellectual understanding and we never begin to reflect, what does that mean for me? How should I change? Or how often are we so distracted, so busy that we go an entire day without even so much as thinking about God? Do we not see that that is a form of negating His authority? It is a form of rebellion. We, we have within us this tendency to turn away from God. And what I want to ask us even right now is why? Why does Judah choose to avoid God? Why, why do we choose to avoid God? Because it's not like it's going to work out well for us. I mean, does it ever work out well when we, when we have something that is important that we just decide, hey, let's ignore and pretend that's not there? I think of about uh, it's 20 years ago now, we were living in Australia, and a nice family uh, loaned to us a terrible car. It was awful. It was a 1984 Mitsubishi Colt, which doesn't even exist anywhere besides Australia, to my understanding, and it was just barely being held together. There was probably duct tape. I'm not sure, but it felt like that. And I remember one time we kind of foolishly decided that we were going to take it to a friend of ours who had a house on a beach town about an eight hours drive away. Sure, why not? So we, we went, and about halfway in, I noticed, and I, don't, I didn't used to pay attention to gauges much, but I noticed one of the gauges, the needle was kind of pointing to a red H. It's like, oh, that's interesting. So what would you do if you see a needle pointing to something red? You probably will do what I do. You just say, hey, the engine's going fine. Everything's good. Let's just keep going. Probably doesn't mean anything. So we drove for four more hours. We got to the place. Five blissful days later where I have been ignoring how it keeps on going to that same point, we are driving back, and we pull in to Ulladulla. That is literally the name. My guess is it's aboriginal for four hours away from anything. And we get into this uh, gas station, and... The internals of the car now having been completely fried, when I shut off the engine, it kind of like gasped its dying breath never to come on again. So here's the thing. So if I had just noticed that, um, not, not ignoring it, not avoiding it, and I think I probably ignored and avoided it because I was kind of afraid because I had no idea what it meant. So I was like, well, because I'm afraid of it, it's better just to pretend it doesn't exist. If I hadn't done that, if I had just pulled into a gas station immediately, they would have said, put some water in your radiator, and all would have been good. But instead, because I just avoided this uncomfortable truth, we were stuck with suitcases and nothing else in the middle of Ulladulla when it was raining. It doesn't go well when we avoid things that are important. And God uses a similar illustration here. Did you notice? He says, when you say these things, therefore this iniquity shall be to you, verse 13, like a breach in a high wall bulging out and about to collapse. 
So think of it this way. You're, you're in the wall, and you notice this kind of crack along this high wall, and it seems to be kind of looking a little bit, well, not so great, but you figure, hey, it's probably been there for a while. And the next day you notice it, and it's there again. Oh, it's probably fine. And, and yet what happens, it says, breaching and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant, and its breaking is like that of a potter's vessel that is smashed. So, so you walk by one day, and suddenly that crack, you start hearing something, and suddenly the whole wall just collapses, and it crumbles around everywhere, and the wall isn't existing anymore. And his point is, you know what? If you had just noticed the crack, if you had just done something about it before, you wouldn't have been in this mess. And in the same way, he's saying, if you had just listened, as I said my word to you, if you had just not avoided me, this would not be the situation that you're in. Because here's the thing. Does it ever make sense to avoid the single most important person in the universe around whom everything else is? God says, you know, if you pretend I'm not here, if you put your head in the sand, it's not like I will disappear. It's just that things will go badly for you. There, there is no possible scenario where saying, let's just avoid thinking about God will turn out well for us, is there? So let me ask again, why do we do it? If it is not a good life plan, why do we keep on saying, I would rather leave God over there and just not think about Him? I think the answer ultimately is fear. I mean, when they say, let's hear no more about the Holy One of Israel, I think that word choice is important. The Holy One of Israel, that, that is terrifying if you think about it. The Holy One of Israel speaks of how God is so different from us. He is so not tame. He is so unpredictable, and that is scary, and it should be to some degree, because He is terrifyingly beyond us. And so, as we think of God, we don't know what He's going to do. We know we can't control Him. We don't know what He's going to ask of us, and that frightens us. And so, because of the fear, we just say, let's just not think about Him. I think at the heart of our tendency to rebel, oftentimes at least, is that we are afraid of God. So that, I think, is the problem that we see when we're talking about this broken relationship. One of the key issues is we have this tendency to avoid God out of fear, and that is rebellion. But we also here have a solution. And the solution is that we can overcome this tendency when we come to understand that there is safety in God's grace. There's something almost tragic here that we see when we hear what God has actually been trying to say to His people. What have they been avoiding? What have they been shutting Isaiah up? Verse 15, thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel. What is it that He wants to say to them? In returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness, and in trust shall be your strength. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, you're tired. I want you to rest. You are weak. I, I want you to have strength. So return to me. Trust in me so that I can give you rest, so that I can give you strength. That's, that's what God's Word is saying right here. That's what He wants to say to His people. How do His people respond, though? What do His people say? But you were unwilling, and you said no. No. 
no to God's offer to give rest and strength? We will flee upon horses. God says, I want to give you rest, and and you say, run away. Why? It's not like this is just a single verse. If we want to understand God's attitude towards His people, we need only continue. Do, Do you notice what it says of God in verse 18? What is God doing as His people are rebelling? Is He kind of figuring out ways to make things go worse and worse? Is he trying to think through how to punish them in multiple different ways? That would be appropriate. But what is God doing, does it say? Verse 18, therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. Commentators say this exalting self literally is to lift him up. We're supposed to imagine he's kind of standing on tiptoes, eagerly just waiting. And what is he waiting? He's waiting because he wants to show grace. He wants to pour his kindness upon this rebellious people. He says his desire is that they will weep no more. God says, all you need to do is cry. Whenever you cry out, it's not even that he's asking them to kind of fix everything. He is just saying, if you were to come to an end of yourself and just cry out to me, I will answer you. I will be gracious to you at the sound of your cry, he says. And if we were to continue and we don't have much time to explore those final verses, we would see the relationship that God longs to have with His people, a relationship where He is close to them, where, where they're, you know, instead of being alone and confused, He will be their teacher right with them. And as they're trying to figure out, He'll say, here's, here's a good way. Here's the way that you should walk. And as, as they are living, as they are wondering who will provide, he's like, let me provide food, let me provide richness, let me take care of you. He, he desires an intimacy where he can show his love more and more and more. And yet God's people say, no, let's run away from that. Why? I mean, we can ask the same thing about ourselves, can't we? I mean, if we've been here for a while, as we've studied God's Word, we, we know with even maybe greater clarity than the people of Judah does that, that God's will for us is not to harm us, but to heal us, to show kindness to us. And, and, and yet, we say, let's keep God at arm's length. Why would we do that? Again, I think the answer is fear, because we just don't understand grace. I mean… It makes sense to us if people like us because we do good things for them. We understand that kind of transactional way of relating. But for us to be not good and yet to just be loved, that is so foreign to us. For the God of the universe who is so much beyond us to say, I just, I desire to pour my grace upon you. It is so different that we feel like we cannot trust it. We feel like it isn't safe. And what I want us, as we are looking at what God is saying to know, is that the only place of safety is in the grace of God. 
In some ways, actions speak louder than words, so let's consider what they could not, the actions that God has shown that shows this very disposition. What did God do for a people who have rejected Him? We know He, this is what we celebrate for, for Christmas, that He came into this world. His Son came into this world. And what does His Son do? His Son chooses our good above His own. He lays down His life. He chooses to die to deal with our rebellion, to die to deal with our sin. Why? He chooses to rise from the dead and begins a new creation where all things are made right for us. Why? Do you not understand? It's grace. It's because this is the character of our God. Our God desires to show this love, this undeserved love to you and to me. And God says, stop avoiding my love. Stop avoiding my grace. My grace is for you. Here is where safety is found. You know, I'm reminded of the famous story that Jesus told, um, the story of the prodigal son, which I wonder because there's so many themes here that are uncommon, whether he actually had this chapter in his background of his mind when he was thinking about the story. But if, you, if you've heard the story, you're familiar with how it begins. One of the sons of a father rebels. He avoids the father. He completely leaves the father's household. And it, and it doesn't go well. Avoiding his father actually ends up leading to bad decisions, and bad decisions lead to poverty, and he is brought to the lowest point. And we know how the story ends, don't we? That, that when the, the son finally decides to return to the father, it says the father from a long way off saw the son, which implies he was waiting. He was standing on tiptoes, and the moment he saw, he ran out to him. And, and to his son's absolute bewilderment, he, he hugged his son who once had been rebellious. He put a robe around him. He had a party, and the son experienced the warmth of the grace of the father. And he felt the safety of grace. But what sometimes I think we don't notice is the very middle part. Because even as the son makes these terrible decisions and he gets to a terrible place, he doesn't immediately say, hey, I've run out of money. Time to go back to dad. No, it says he, he tries to find a job. And he gets a job. And the job is feeding pigs, which would have been super demeaning labor. And even that doesn't pay enough. So he gets to the point where he starts looking at pig slop and thinking that that would make a good dinner. And it says, only at that point. Like there's been this long delay where he has not been thinking about going to the Father. And I'm assuming the reason is because of shame. I'm assuming the reason is because of fear. I'm assuming it's because he could not possibly imagine that he would be welcomed back after he did something like what he just did. And yet, in this phrase that's pregnant with meaning, Jesus says, and then he came to himself and he returned. And what I want to encourage us to understand is this passage is inviting you to come to yourselves by returning to the Father. Some of you right now may be keeping God at distance for reasons I don't even fully understand. And what I want you, what I want us to understand is that when Jesus speaks, He speaks on behalf of the Father when He says, come all you who are weary, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come, stop 
avoiding, you stop keeping God at arm's length. There is safety, there is joy in the grace of God. I'd like to invite us, whether we are people who have been keeping God at arm's length or people who are seeking to follow God faithfully, and yet we know there are times that we rebel, that we avoid Him, wherever we're at, I'd like to invite us to take a few minutes with God and, and, and to draw near to Him. Even if for you this morning you draw near to Him with confusion, bring that confusion to God because that's what God welcomes. Let's spend some time in, in confession and prayer, and then I'll lead us in prayer in a couple minutes' time. We'll, we will use the, the prayer that's printed here, um, and right in the middle of it, what we'll do is we'll have silent confession. Um, so let's together pray this community confession of sin, and in the middle we'll have a time where we're silently speaking to God. Heavenly Father, your Son is our truest hope, worthy of our undivided faith. He is the source of our deepest joy, and in him alone do we have peace together. Yet we confess that we so often look elsewhere for these things. We place our hope in the promises of this world, and we trust the things we feel we can control. We seek satisfaction and peace in the pleasures and comforts of the moment. We confess to you our sinful pride. Let's spend some time in silence with God.